You may be seated. Do you find it difficult to let sin go, that is, sin that you have repented of? I do. Certain sins, after I've repented of them and I've received God's forgiveness, keep flooding back into uh, my memory. And along with those sins that keep flooding back also comes the guilt and the shame that accompanies uh, sin. The old, already repented of sins seem so fresh at times that it is as if we just uh, committed, committed them again. Well, I think our passage today gives us two answers to the question why we find it uh, difficult to let some sins go, why we keep on struggling to rest in the promises of God's pardon and forgiveness through Christ Jesus. And I think one answer that we find in our passage today is that we lack humility, that we fail to understand just how far-reaching our sin really is. Its effect is far-reaching. And then secondly, we lack faith in resting in the promise of God that, that Jesus has taken our sin away, that in Christ Jesus our sin is sent away into the wilderness. It has been removed. And so we'll be looking at these two answers to this question, which I think the question reflects a common struggle that we have in repenting of sin, but then that old sin coming back to plague us once again. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that we can come before you and enjoy being in your presence while at the same time being challenged to seek you, to love you more. And Father, I pray today that as we look at this 16th chapter of Leviticus, that you might work very deeply in our hearts and and show us Jesus and show us the full orb nature of his atonement. Show us that he is that scapegoat that takes our sin away, never to plague us again. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, we we struggle to rest in God's forgiveness and his pardon because we lack humility, and we lack humility because we do not fully understand the far-reaching effect of our sins. So the atonement for all their sins, which is the first point on your sermon outline, As we dive into Leviticus 16, we we will see just how far-reaching sin is and that humility is essential to repentance. So our sin is great. It is so great that it affects everything. Sin is like flour. Every year, Renee and I make homemade pancake mix. And the recipe requires pounds of white flour. 
And the process is not all that complicated, but it's very messy. We have flour, we have all these other ingredients, and as we are mixing our pancake mix, flour dust goes everywhere, even on my hands, and everything I touch leaves a residue of flour. Well, see, sin is like flour. Our everything we touch, our, our sin is like touching things and we leave a residue of sin, of, of pollution. And Leviticus 16 actually points this out to us, just how far-reaching our sin is and our need for full atonement. That is atonement that is in degree as well as extent. And so the chapter opens, so turn to Leviticus 16. We'll not look at the whole chapter. We'll look at portions of it. But it begins with this verse. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons, Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And so this is a reference to the story that we find in chapter 10, where Aaron's oldest two sons, he had four sons, the oldest, Nadab and Abihu, they offered what the text says in chapter 10, verse 1, unauthorized fire before the Lord. And what made it unauthorized is that these two brothers just conjured up this sacrifice. They decided that they would offer this to the Lord in their way. God had not authorized it. They made this offering capriciously, just on a whim. Further, they made this offering, the text tells us, before the Lord. And that implies that these two sons went into the holy place there in the tabernacle and were before the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, the very throne room of God. And they either began pulling the curtain back to go behind the veil, or they actually went in the veil to the holy place, the most holy place of God. And their sin polluted that holy place. By their mere presence, they contaminated God's sanctuary, God's very throne room. Well, what could Nadab and Abihu have to do with Christians living in 2018? Their story in chapter 10 and the reference that we find in Leviticus chapter 16 picture the effect of sin as an offense against God's holiness. When we sin, think about it. When you or I sin, it is as if we're there right before the veil, like Nadab and Abihu, and we try to pull the curtain back to sneak in there. It's an offense. to. It is a violation against God's holiness. That picture should help us understand the sinfulness of sin. That picture should help us understand how we sin against God, and all sin is an offense against His holiness. 
Nadab and Abihu defile God's holy place. All our sin, though it may affect other people, it certainly affects us, above all is an offense against God. How did David, King David, confess his sin? Psalm 51, verses 3 through 4. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God will not tolerate any violation of his holiness, even by the sons of his high priest, Nadab and Abihu. They suffered immediate judgment. They dropped dead right there in and around or behind the veil. And this event serves as the immediate occasion for God giving to Moses the instructions concerning the Day of Atonement. God in his mercy provided a way that atonement might be made through one man, Aaron the high priest and his predecessors. That atonement might be made for once a year, Aaron going behind the veil according to God's way to make atonement. Can you imagine the first time that Aaron went behind the veil standing right where his sons dropped dead? And yet he did not die because he did so according to God's instructions. God's way makes atonement. God's way preserves his holiness. Look at the very last section of Leviticus 16, beginning with verse 32. I think this summarizes the entire chapter. Let me read that for us. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded. And so as you read through the whole chapter, Leviticus chapter 16, you'll find something interesting about God's instructions to make atonement. First, atonement is made for holy places and holy things. Aaron goes into the most holy place and he, and he follows God's instructions about applying the blood of the bull that had been sacrificed to the, to the altar, thereby cleansing the very throne room of God. And then he moves out to the holy place and does the same thing. And then he moves out to the altar and does the same thing. He makes atonement for the most holy place, the holy place, and the altar in light of his sin and in light of the sin of the people as he applies the blood of the bull for himself and the blood of the, of the one goat with the lot failed to be the sacrifice for the people. Have you ever thought of holy places being cleansed, atonement being made for the holy places? 
And then, of course, the burnt offerings that are also prescribed in Leviticus chapter 16 is for the making atonement for Aaron's sin and the people's sin. And I want us to see that what this depicts for us is that atonement is full-orbed. Atonement is made in degree and it is made in extent. Everything that depicts and symbolizes God's holiness, objects, places, and people are atoned for. It's full-orbed. And I think the phrase in verse 16, all their sin, speaks to the degree as well as the extent of the atonement. All their sin, not part, not some, not, that, not if they uh, promise never to do that sin again, all their sin is atoned for. Of course, the Day of Atonement points to the atoning work of Christ, the better priest, the better sacrifice, as we read in Hebrews chapter 9. He atones for all their sin, all our sin, our very sin that violates the holiness of God. And I'll just read just a portion of Hebrews 9, 24 through 28, focusing on verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. This is what we're talking about today in Leviticus 16, Aaron entering into the holy place that was created by man under God's instruction, which are copies of the true, true things, but Christ into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, why can't or, or why do we struggle to rest in God's forgiveness and uh, pardon in Christ Jesus? I think we often lack humility in repentance because we fail to really understand the far-reaching effect of all our sins. We can easily refuse repentance with relief. We, we ask God to forgive us and remove the consequences of our sin. And yet we know in Hosea, God says, that is not repentance. For the people did not cry out from their heart. We see the very nature of true repentance in an odd place in Leviticus chapter 16. Look with me to verse 4. This is describing the garments Aaron is to wear as he goes into the most holy place to make atonement. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. Now what's interesting about this in that previously in chapter 8, what do we find? We find the priestly garments being described and they are ornate. They are beautiful. Just read chapter 8 and you'll just see how lavish the, priest, the, high, the garments for the high priest really are. But here in chapter 16, 
Aaron is to wear simple clothes. So if we're invited to the White House, there were a group of young people a couple of weeks ago invited to the White House. These were young people, many from impoverished areas, and they were going to, to a conference there with, with the president. And so many of them had to go buy new clothes, and thankfully people donated so they could buy new clothes because what? they were going to see the president, and they wanted to dress up as they should and as we should if we were invited to the White House. But what's interesting is here Aaron is told, dress down, wear simple linen clothing. In other words, wear clothing that represents a humble estate. God's saying, hey, listen, man, you're coming before me because you and the people have violated my holiness. Don't you come before me with your ornate priestly garments on. You come in contrition. You come in sorrow. You come hating your sin. You come with the simple clothing of linen as you represent the people and as you make atonement. Arrogance and pride have no place before God but humility, contrition, sorrow, disdain for sin, and confession. What does James tell us in chapter 4, verses 6 through 7? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 John 1, 8 through 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we understand just how much our sin has offended God's holiness, we should be more concerned about offending God than seeking relief from the consequences of our sin. Humility and acknowledging our sin against God leads to true repentance. So maybe we need to dress down, humble ourselves more as we go before God in repentance. And maybe we need to start by repenting of our false repentance. As great as our sin is and as much as it offends God's holiness, in light of the fact that he would be justified if he judged us like he did, Nadab and Abihu, and just simply struck us dead right in our tracks, in light of that, yet he provides a way of atonement through Christ. And we've been studying about this throughout these chapters in Leviticus, but he does something more. Leviticus 16 tells us that he does provide a way of atonement where, where we find forgiveness and pardon from sin through the blood of a sacrifice, obviously pointing to Jesus. But he tells us more in that full atonement means that our sin has been sent away from God's relationship with us forever, never to return. 
Second, we struggle to rest in God's forgiveness because we lack faith by failing to rest in the far-reaching removal of our sin. Removal of all our sin, the second point of your sermon outline, is essential to living in the freedom that Christ has won for us. Now listen, theologically, we, we may know God removes our sin and remembers it no more, but practically... At least I and perhaps most of us here struggle to believe that God really will really remember our sins no more. And why is that? Because it is such a struggle for us to not remember offenses against us that others have made. Have you ever been offended by someone? Have they come to you and they confess their sin and you say, I forgive you? And then it keeps replaying, that offense keeps replaying in your head. That's a weakness on our part. And I think sometimes we actually assign that weakness with regards to our view of God. That surely he can't remember that sin no more. But Leviticus 16 tells us otherwise. It's a wonderful picture depicting that God is not like us. The result of a full-orbed atonement is that our sin has been sent away, never to return. The animals used in Leviticus 16 were a a bull and two goats. Lots were cast for the two goats. One goat's lot was to be a sacrifice. The other goat's lot was to be Azazel, the second goat. That, that term, Azazel, literally means the goat that goes away. The scapegoat, in other words. Look at verse 20. I read Leviticus 16, 20 through 22. And when he was made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Aaron, by by laying his his hands on the head of that goat, associates that goat with himself and with the people. Aaron, laying his hands on the head of that goat and confessing their sins, places all their sin on that goat symbolically. And that goat is sent out to the wilderness. He's, He's led out to a remote place and he's set free. The goat is set free. The goat is set free? Who experiences freedom because all the sin is on the goat? The people. The people are free from all their sin. 
Think with me of Christ on the cross. He did not symbolically bear all the sins of all his people. He actually bore all the sins of all the elect as he hung there on that cross. He atoned. He compensated. He was the ransom payment for our sin to God. He shed his blood and he did more. He removed sin from, the, from our relationship with God forever. One of the passages that I think is just absolutely beautiful as it depicts the, the, the suffering of Christ on the cross is Isaiah 52 verse 13 through the end of chapter 53. I encourage you to read that sometime today, but I want to focus on the very last part of the last verse, verse 12. Yet he, Christ, because Isaiah 53 is pointing to Jesus, yet he, Christ, bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, Jesus was associated with us. He was a man like we are in every respect, yet without sin. And he bore our sin and he was sent away. He is the ultimate scapegoat. He takes away our sin, and we are free from it forever. And then verse 12 tells us that he intercedes for us, that he assures that that sin will never condemn us that we will always have a right relationship with God in him. You see, that goat bearing all the sin of the people meant they were free from sin, ever coming up again in God's relationship with them. And what this means for us is that when we truly repent of sin, it is sent away and is never to return again, never to weigh us down with guilt again, never to weigh us down with experiencing the shame again. We are free from it. We are free to love God and others. We are free to serve God and others. We are free to live abundantly. We are free to be whole. We are free to approach God because the sin has been sent away in Christ Jesus. Listen to these words in Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8.12 For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Micah 7.19 He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Our sin has been sent away. Theologically, we believe that. Practically, will we rest there? Will we trust God to do what he says? And to be who he says he is in his word. 
Why can it be such a struggle to rest in the promises of God's forgiveness and full pardon in Christ Jesus? First, as we've been challenged, we so easily lack humility. We fail to really understand the far-reaching effect of our sin. But God has called us to be humble before Him and to truly repent of all our sins that have offended Him and violated His holiness. And Christ has made a full-orbed atonement for all our sins that we may be forgiven and pardoned. Let us humble ourselves and repent and be forgiven. And second, we've been challenged to see our lack of faith by failing to rest in the far-reaching removal of our sins. God's Word has called us to trust and rest in the work of Christ, the scapegoat who takes our sin and it is sent away. And when we truly repent of sin and God forgives us, that confessed sin is gone. It is not to return. We are not to shame and have guilt any longer over it. God's word tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, if you go east, you never stop going east. Listen, brothers and sisters, when we go to the Lord and confess our sins, we need to do so humbly. But we need to believe that God does what he says he will do. In Christ Jesus, he sends our sin away as far as the east is from the west, an infinite degree. God says, I remember their sins no more. And God says, I have taken their sins and dumped them in the sea, never to be seen again. Let's pray. Father, continue to pour out your grace and mercy in us now as we come to your table, as we come to be revived and refreshed in this covenant meal as, as you have encouraged us with the means of grace, the word. Now, O oh God, I pray that you would encourage us with the means of grace, the sacrament, which is a beautiful depiction of Christ atoning for our sins, Christ being that scapegoat that sends our sins away. Bless us, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.